elites in the West are very closely interwoven with the elite in Russia, and they brought their countries in a close interdependency with Russia, which restricted their possibilities to act in such a critical situation. Dear anti-corruption community, welcome to a new episode of Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. My name is Christopher Starke. Obviously, today will not be like any other episode so far. It is difficult to find the right words, but of course our hearts and thoughts go out to all Ukrainians who are affected by the terrible war that broke out last week. But we also want to send our thoughts to all the Russian citizens who are peacefully protesting against the aggression of President Putin. In light of the terrible events, we at Kickback decided to change our format. We want to give our platform, as small as it may be, to experts who know far more about the topic than we do. So this is why we will record interviews throughout this week and throughout next week and upload them as soon as possible, but with no strict timetable. When we held our annual conference of the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network in Kiev in 2019, Kickback was only three months old at the time. We met a lot of researchers and practitioners who dedicated their work for anti-corruption efforts and for fighting for democratic values more generally. And it was also due to the positive feedback that we received at that conference in Kiev that has been an important driver for us to keep going. And now, almost three years later, we publish our 70th episode. And for this episode, we are delighted to welcome our two ICRN colleagues and friends, Oksana Hus from the University of Bologna in Italy, and Joseph Poshgai Alvarez from the University of Osaka in Japan. It was actually at that conference in Kiev where I met Joseph for the very first time. For me very personally, I have to say that I'm incredibly proud of both of them for finding the strength to speak out in these difficult times. But you will see, despite the current tragedy that is unfolding before our eyes, today's episode does not only have a somber tone, we will also discuss some aspects to be hopeful about. Now, without further ado, over to the interview with Oksana and Joseph, interviewed by Matthew. Greetings, welcome to Kickback. This is Matthew Stevenson. I'm here today with uh, two guests, Oksana Hus a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Bologna, and Joseph Poshkai Alvarez, an associate professor and specialist in anti-corruption studies at Osaka University in Japan. And uh, we're here today, it's a rather um, somber moment and a somber episode. We want to talk about unfolding events in Ukraine, Russia's uh, increasingly aggressive uh, full-scale invasion of Ukraine, and how these recent events relate to corruption, anti-corruption, um, money laundering, and the associated topics that are typically uh, the subject of the Kickback podcast. Obviously, there's so much more to this conflict, uh, so much more to these events uh, than uh, corruption and anti-corruption. But since that's the theme of uh, this podcast, and uh, that's uh, clearly at least a, a part of the context for recent developments, we thought it would be useful to devote an episode of this podcast to discussing those issues. So Oksana Joseph and Joseph, uh, thank you very much for uh, being willing to appear at very short notice on today's episode. Thank you, a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting. Now, events on the ground are changing very rapidly and we record these episodes in advance. We're recording this episode on um, Sunday, the 27th of February. Uh, we're hoping that it will be up uh, by tomorrow. So I'm reluctant to say anything too specific about exactly what's happening right now, but maybe the best place to start the conversation is with a little bit of the um, broader context for the current conflict. And Oksana, I was wondering if you could maybe begin our conversation, uh, maybe first tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, your areas of specialization, um, and how they might relate to what's going on. But then I would invite you to try to give me and our listeners a little bit of, broad, of a broader sense of, of, of your uh, understanding of, of what's going on um, and what's at stake. Yes, thank you, Matthew. I'm uh, originally from Ukraine, 
from Zakarpatia region, which is in the western of Ukraine, uh, on the border to Slovakia and Hungary. So in the moment, this is uh, the most peaceful area in whole the country, while all the country is um, hidden by the aggression. Uh, I uh, used to do my PhD on uh, corruption, on political corruption in Ukraine. And uh, I've done it in Germany at uh, the Duisburg Essen University. So I was studying for a couple of years political corruption in Ukraine and also framing of corruption narratives about anti-corruption, how uh, those narratives were used in policies and uh, transferred into anti-corruption politics in the end. So I was studying Ukraine until 2014. And uh, currently I'm working at the Bologna University, as you said, and the area of our studies in the BTECT project that I'm a part of. It's uh, anti-corruption social movements and how they use technology to fight corruption. And uh, on the current situation, I was shocked as everyone else. And I reflected after a couple of days when everything started, when I got the capacity to reflect, uh, why everyone was shocked. And rhetorically, we hear often the point that this is the war against democracy. And I see that this is not only rhetorically, but in fact, this is the first war against democracy after the end of the Cold War. And there are databases about conflicts that one can check where we can see, so this is the first aggression against democracy after the end of the Cold War. One might ask that, is Ukraine a democracy or is it a hybrid regime? And until 2014, it was indeed a hybrid regime. But 2014, we had a revolution that overthrew the corrupt regime of Yanukovych, who fled um, after that to Russia. So in this revolution, what happened, maybe people came up, uh, Yanukovych regime assassinated uh, peaceful protests, but it didn't stop people. And that was already the second revolution because the first, uh, the first one was 2004, the Orange Revolution. And that was the second revolution where corruption was also uh, a topic, a huge uh, theme why people came to protest and where people showed that they were able to mobilize and they were able to overthrow uh, the ruling regime. And this is what makes Ukraine different from Russia. This was the example where people got the agency that they are influencing the politics, the policy and the polity in the country. And after that, in the last six, seven years, in fact, the democracy was growing from below. So if we look at some indexes, at corruption perception index or uh, quantitative assessments maybe of democracy, Ukraine not, was not doing uh, so well at all of them. And it is quite misleading because the change was happening from the bottom. What do I mean by that? that on the one hand, civil society was strengthened and empowered a lot. So people were uh, creating institutions, organizing, and they were also uh, literally influencing development of the policy in the country. So civil societies, organizations were engaged into uh, drafting law drafts uh, of reforms that were ongoing in the country after the Maidan revolution. Uh, on the local level also, the participatory democracy uh, developed a lot. So one of the promising reforms in Ukraine was decentralization reform. That local level got more political and economic influence and powers. And in course of this reform, there were many activities that local governments were introducing to engage people, to consult with people, so people got this flavor and ownership of the country from below. 
So that was a really important point. How this turned out, in 2019, we had a free and fair elections where President Zelensky was elected with the majority, actually unprecedented historical majority also in Ukraine. And uh, maybe more um, relevant to our topic, that 2020, we can say that for the first time, there was a visibility that anti-corruption institutions were delivering. The anti-corruption, special anti-corruption court, they started to do first convictions of high political corruption cases. And also independent anti-corruption institutions like uh, the Agency for Prevention of Corruption was rebooted. Then uh, National Anti-Corruption Bureau of Ukraine. And uh, they showed the first uh, deliveries. In that year, by the end of 2020, we had a huge um, challenge to all of these reforms. And that was when uh, a constitutional court started hijacking all the anti-corruption attempts. And it turned out also that some representatives of constitutional court, they were directly linked to Russia, also having their properties uh, in Crimea. And these links, they were like first hints that the main problem or the most difficult area that was reform or sector that was to reform in Ukraine, its judiciary, it was partially representing Russian interests. This is something I described with my uh, colleague Alexandra Koidel in the Nations in Transit report, last report 2021. So in the end, on the numbers or nominally, uh, the world didn't perceive Ukraine as democracy, maybe. But in fact, by 2020, the country became very democratic. And to my opinion, this was one of the challenges to Russia, and maybe even the main cause why Russia in, uh, invaded Ukraine now, because that was posing the political threat to all the Russian culture and uh, order. I would love if you could say a little bit more about that, because again, as a as an outsider to all of this, I mean, I don't know anything really uh, useful about international politics or military strategy or, or anything, but there has been a debate in the international press and elsewhere about why it was that uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. Nobody, at least nobody outside of Russia or Russia's uh, close allies or client states believes Russia's official justification that there was a Ukrainian genocide against Russian speakers in, in Eastern Ukraine. But there's a debate about, for example, whether this is because Russia felt uh, w- worried about NATO expansion, uh, that Ukraine might pose uh, a military threat to Russia. That's a very popular theory in some quarters. It didn't strike me as, as terribly plausible, especially because the prospects of Ukraine becoming a NATO member seem quite remote, even if they wanted it. And Russia didn't seem previously bothered by other nations on its borders becoming NATO members. Um, but there's, you know, then there's a kind of historical, uh, kind of atavistic desire by Putin or those around him to restore the greatness of the Russian Empire. That it's more a kind of an emotional or, or grand historical idea. But then there's this idea that you touched on, and this is what I'd really like you to expand on: that even if Ukraine didn't pose and wouldn't realistically have posed any kind of serious military security threat to Russia, that developments in Ukraine did pose a kind of political or cultural threat to Russia, or maybe even more directly, some of what you said said maybe suggested a kind of an economic threat to certain elements of the Russian elite. Can you just, I'd love you to elaborate on that a little bit and particularly connect it not only to Ukraine's democratization, but as you said, a kind of not only anti-corruption, but really kind of anti-kleptocracy uh, movement and rhetoric was emerging in Ukraine under the current administration, but not just with, with the current administration. Some outsiders might wonder, like, how could Russia, especially where Putin and his inner circle have such strong control, how, why could they possibly care so much about whether Ukraine elected a kind of former actor on an anti-corruption platform and created an anti-corruption court and are, you know, convicting a few high-level Ukrainian uh, politicians or, or businessmen. Like, why, 
to a skeptic who might say, how could Russia possibly care so much about something like that to do what it has done? What, what would you say? So I would like to go a little bit back and to say that Ukraine was for 70 years part of the Soviet Union. And uh, when Ukraine became independent in 1991, Ukraine and Russia were on the same same place, same point of departure with regards of how people perceive government. And the whole goal of the Soviet Union was detach people from government. So we think from you, uh, we think for you and you please do not engage in politics in whatsoever way. So people didn't have the agency. People didn't have nothing to say. Now, while in Russia, everything remained so for all the years because there is a very strong vertical that Putin built and even the oligarchs they are playing in Russia different role than the oligarchs were playing in Ukraine. In Ukraine, indeed, all the process of privatization gave the very fertile soil for oligarchs to develop. But the peculiarity was that oligarchs, they became kind of uh, in competition to each other. So there was no vertical, but they, there was all the time competition between oligarchs, which translated into political competition in the country. So even though Ukraine wasn't the full democracy, because oligarchs were those who had the, uh, to say the prior word for the long time, uh, still there was a, pol- a political and economic competition between them. So that made kind of the difference. Well, now what happened after Maidan, or actually it was already developing even after the Orange Revolution. So there was this growing process, development of the nation, uh, of national identity as well. And in this process, the Maidan was the peak where people showed that they do have agency and that they do have influence. And it was a uh, and dangerous example or precedent for people in Belarus, in Russia, for other countries, marionettes of Russia, that might have encouraged their countries uh, or people in their countries to develop this agency. And what we see now, also the point of reactions in the West uh, that we see that maybe this bottom-up democracy that developed in Ukraine, this power of strong civil society that became structured, became um, influential, but also of ordinary people on the local level who began influencing local level politics, it kind of redefined maybe even democracy or updated the notion of democracy in my understanding. Because what many Western governments now showed in the recent three days, especially in this discussion about sanctions, that they are even more corrupt than country like Ukraine. Why is that? If we think about corruption, that governments have to work um, above the agency of people or in name of the people and to be concerned about the power good, then surprisingly, Ukrainian elite showed a very strong leadership in this war. No one expected that, but they are doing a really good job in staying in place and coordinating the work and being fully, fully dedicated to the people. So they showed that they are not corrupt in terms of human values. So the main value that they show integrity with is the value of human life and that they are staying with the country. While the Western countries, they showed that the main value they have is the economic value, while the second value comes, this is human value. And one of the problems that I see, because now is the question, or uh, Western governments, European states, Olaf Scholz uh, today, he said that they are going to uh, invest much more into 
militarization of the country. I think this is the wrong uh, assessment of the situation because they are showing that the problem was that Europe didn't have the army or that uh, they were weak in terms of missiles of military power. But my point is that the problem was that elites in the West are very closely interwoven with the elites or with economics in Russia. And they brought their countries in a close interdependency with Russia, which restricted their possibilities to act in such a critical situation and uh, restricted, restricted their capacity to resist to such a war and such an attack on time. So this is why so many civilians, victims are getting more and more in Ukraine right now. So I'm glad you brought up that last point because again, my, my very much outsider's perspective on this conflict is that corruption and anti-corruption is relevant to at least two respects. One is what we were talking about earlier, the extent to which uh, Ukraine's move towards a more genuine democracy, but also its move towards a cleaner government and society may have posed a, a political and social threat to, to Russia and Russian elites, um, and therefore might have been part of the background context for why Russia views Ukraine as so threatening. Um, but then there's also this concern that many have discussed about the ways in which Russia and Russian elites might have been using their wealth and might continue to use their wealth to influence and to undermine the response to Russian aggression in Ukraine. I think sometimes people refer to this as, as a kind of strategic corruption or exporting corruption. And Joseph, maybe this is an appropriate point to bring you into the conversation because I know you've been uh, doing some work on this topic. So, so as with Oksana, if you could first please just say a little bit uh, about who you are in your research background, but then I would love if you could talk a little bit about these concerns about strategic corruption and what we know about this issue and what we've learned about it in the last four days. Sure. Well, I, I've been working in the, in the subject of uh, anti-corruption for about 13 years now. First, as an intern in the Prime Minister's Office of Peru, I'm originally Peruvian, and that's where I first became acquainted with the topic. And then I, I moved here to Japan to, to pursue my, my postgraduate studies. And since then, it has been a bit of my obsession, let's say. So I usually say that I, that I look at any new topic from the or, or with the goggles of anti-corruption. And I arrived to this issue that we are discussing today from a rather different approach, I should say, because, of course, I'm a lot more familiar with Latin American politics. And here I have also specialized in Southeast Asian politics. But I, I like beginning with the development of theoretical models and then looking for empirical cases that may work to test them. And for some time now, I've been working with the expansion or, or, or different ways in, in approaching the definition of corruption or the different definitions of corruption and its measurement. And in, in Japan, is uh, corruption is not such a big subject. I am the founder of the Japan Network uh, of Anti-Corruption Researchers, which is a rather small group of uh, scholars, Japan-based scholars that are interested in, in issues re related to public integrity, transparency, access to public information, uh, ethics, morality, and of course, issues with uh, money laundering uh, and, and related. And the situation now in Europe is, I, I, I believe that it has become a turning point for the anti-corruption field, for, for this large uh, and growing network of international practitioners, professionals, included in the private sector, and of course, scholars, and the way that we have been looking at the problem of corruption. Because in many ways, I, I believe that the ICR and what it stands for, exactly the point that it's an interdisciplinary group, it says a lot of what the future is from the perspective of, of fighting corruption and, and understanding corruption. 
because for the longest time, at least from the perspective of the social sciences, the study of what corruption is and how it manifests have taken different avenues. Uh, for example, administrative ethics is a subject that has been advancing since at least the 1950s. The study of corruption proper really became a, a, a global phenomenon in academia, as you know, since mid-1990s. And we have made a lot of progress, but there's not sufficient uh, communication, I should say, between professionals and, and scholars that come from different backgrounds. Mostly it's political scientists, uh, economists, and lawyers to a certain degree, and to a much lesser degree, individuals uh, involved in uh, administrative studies, as I already said, uh, business studies, et cetera, et cetera, even criminologists, for example. So I noticed a few years ago, a new term started a, a, a rising, which was, uh, as you just mentioned, that of a strategic corruption, but not from people that were really familiar with the anti-corruption discourse, but rather from international relations scholars, kind of trying to use it to address one of, uh, not a new, but certainly a growing uh, tool that was being used by a number of countries that are, that are not very fond of the West, I should say, but more specifically three that were Iran, uh, China, and Russia. But there's not a lot that we know still about it. Uh, an interesting report came not very long ago by the Alliance for Securing Democracy, where they started kind of mapping the incidents of, of different forms of authoritarian interference, one of which we can say that the strategic corruption represents. But, but it's, of course, it's broader than just a strategic corruption because it, it also involves malignant finance, for example, and economic coercion, uh, many of which could also have elements of corruption depending on how we define each one of them. Theoretically, as, as I just mentioned, it's something that continues developing. So it, we don't just have everything systematized just yet, but something that is already known that at least empirical, empirically, this authoritarian push from a small number of countries attacking the financial and political system of democratic countries in the West, and most particularly industrialized countries, have rapidly increased since around 2014. And if we think back a couple of uh, events that have happened around that time, of course, while the annexation of Crimea by Russia, but also the second administration of President Putin and the accession of, uh, uh, of Xi Jinping in China. So we're seeing here a new wave of authoritarianism that, again, is broader to just the conversation about anti-corruption. It's also palpable in Latin America, in Brazil with uh, Bolsonaro, uh, in Mexico, even in my own country in Peru. Here in Southeast Asia, we have the situation with the military in Thailand, Myanmar, that, uh, again, the uh, democratic government collapsed uh, last year, and of course in the Philippines with President Duterte. So as I see it, the, the discussion about anti-corruption is with the international geopolitical and, and security architecture, at least of the global north, is changing in this moment, with it, the anti-corruption discourse, if it's not changing, it certainly needs to do so. Because the connections in terms of uh, financial markets of China and Russia with a, a specific country such as uh, Germany, France, uh, UK, the United States, just to name a few, have been increasing at least in the, uh, the fall of the, with, with the end of the Cold War. And we all thought, based on the neoliberal agenda, that it was going to work for the best, that everything that was needed in order to support and foster democracy or democratic development in these countries was to have them uh, develop a strong connection with the global financial system of the international liberal order. However, now it has become very, very clear that instead of them becoming more democratic, what has happened is that they have been able to export corruption 
to a number of these liberal democracies in a way that threatens their national security. So this is the moment where I see the discourse of anti-corruption that has normally, again, as I mentioned, been taken from a political perspective in terms of uh, regime legitimacy, for example, uh, and of course, uh, the strength of democratic institutions is completely connected with national and international security. And we just saw it not very long ago in December, the Summit for Democracy that was hosted by President Biden in the United States. I was very happy to see that one of the three core elements was, in fact, anti-corruption. So this is something that is being internationally recognized. Unfortunately, as we are just seeing this week, actions could not be taken in time not just in terms of dissuading uh, the military intervention of Russia in Ukraine or invasion, I should say, because this is what it is, but it has also limited the capacity of Western allies, political allies of Ukraine uh, from acting in a more decisive way. And of course, the first example that we saw was of Germany, but also other countries that were hesitant at the beginning of disconnecting radically from Russia because of their own energetic needs, which I I believe that is entirely reasonable. But at the same time, this is something that a number of experts and even former President Donald Trump mentioned repeatedly a few years ago, the fact that a, a number of countries were at the same time complaining about the increasing aggression, or at least an aggressive posture in the political realm of Russia and other countries, while at the same time, they were providing Russia and other countries with a large amount of financial resources and access to their financial markets. So I know that I have just put under a number of ideas, but this is very much where I come from in this discussion. Great, that's very helpful. Let me let me build on what you said to ask both of you a few questions about this. And, and, and Joseph, starting with the concept of strategic corruption, many of the themes you were just talking about, my perception, you know, whether you want to call it corruption or not, I'm not so into labels or definition. I'm, I'm happy to use that. But there were at least a couple of ways that countries like Russia attempted to use money, essentially, to uh, advance their interests by Again, yeah, I'm ha- perfectly happy to call it corrupting uh, or certainly influencing in, in uh, a nefarious way uh, Western institutions and Western governments. One had to do with the cultivation of supporters, right? Whether it's um, giving money to think tanks or uh, journalists who are nominally independent, but boy, there's a, you know, every other day I remember reading, this is well, this is a week or two before the invasion, uh, an American journalist re- repeatedly referred to the Maidan uprising as a coup that deposed Yanukovych. And to me, that was a, that struck me as a tip off that I don't know if that person was actually on the Russian payroll, but that seemed to be like repeating Russian propaganda points, but then political parties as well, especially the, the, um, the far right in, in Europe and Latin America had been very much cultivated by Russia. So that's the, the first channel you can think of is using money to cultivate cultural and political allies. And the second channel, not, totally unrelated, but a little bit distinct, is as Joseph, you were just saying, all of the money that flows in to Western Europe in particular, but elsewhere as well, real estate in London, all of the enablers that we talk about these days, the bankers, the lawyers, the accountants, the middlemen, and others. And I think the thinking was that the economic interests in maintaining good relations with Russia, and not just Russia as a country with Putin and Putin's inner circle and Russian oligarchs and so forth would be so strong that the West would not be willing to confront Russian aggression or more generally would be more pro-Russian than a sober evaluation of national interest would justify. I think these are the kinds of things people have in mind when they talk about strategic corruption. Again, I know it's complicated, it's broader, but like that's kind of what I think of. Okay, so Joseph, you just shared, I think, the the a very widespread pessimistic take in the effectiveness of this kind of strategic corruption in contributing to the current crisis. And I I understand that and I I persuaded by large parts of it, but I wanna ask both of you, there's a, 
I think, I don't know if I want to call it an, an optimistic story exactly, because nothing in the current situation is optimistic, but that there's at least the possibility that Russia may have overestimated the efficacy of these forms of strategic corruption, because it, it, it's true that there was some initial hesitance, but we're now four days into the invasion and you know the sanctions imposed by the West, while not perfect, are I think off a lot stiffer than people expected. The Nord Stream, Stream 2 pipeline was, that project was ended. Germany initially was reluctant to supply uh, weapons systems to Ukraine and then did a complete reversal on that in the space of about 24 hours. You know, the, it's true that Russia has not been, not all Russian financial institutions have been removed from the SWIFT payment system, but several of the major Russian banks have been or will be very shortly, whereas a few days ago, people predicted that that would, was never going to happen. So again, I don't want to be, I can't be optimistic in the current situation when, you know, Ukraine is under attack and, and people are dying. I hate to use the language of optimism, but maybe the way I want to put the question is this. Did Russia perhaps overplay its hand in this case? Are the forms of strategic corruption that Russia was using to undermine Western resistance to Russia's more aggressive foreign policy, uh, you know, were those, those mechanisms maybe less effective than we feared they were, at least when the, the aggression is so obvious? It, it seems like uh, there's actually been quite stiff and you know, not not universal resistance, but at least in the West, close to universal resistance, notwithstanding all of the economic costs that might be associated with this. I mean, the West is still reluctant to do things like impose a no-fly zone on Ukraine, but that doesn't seem so much the result of, you know, an addiction to Russian money as it is the concern about a direct military conflict with a nuclear power. So is there is there anything to the idea that maybe Russia's uh, strategic corruption, whatever its efficacy and however much of a concern it ought to be, actually maybe wasn't enough to overcome the the backlash against this such blatant hostility? I would like to uh, start maybe with, with the example of such a strategic corruption in Germany, because it shows a very direct link between corruption and undermining security. And Joseph mentioned it uh, a little bit the de dependency of Germany uh, on Russian gas. So Bundeschancellor, uh, Bundeskanzler Schröder in Germany, he, after his, uh, his being chancellor, he moved into the leading positions for working with the Gazprom. And he is a chairman of uh, the Shell. He was proposed as a chairman of shareholders committee and he's serving on the board of uh, Nord Stream 2. And he's also chairman of the board of directors of the Russian state agency, uh, Rosneft. So he has multiple positions while he had all the connections, influence in Germany and access to all the politicians in Germany to lobby all the interests. So where did that result? 25% of German gas storage belong to Gazprom. I mean, this gas storage, it means already securing the gas supply for the country. For the first time in this year, Gazprom didn't fill the gas storage for the winter. Because usually if you look for the ch at the charts, uh, the gas storage is filled uh, uh, for the winter, and then it's getting less and annually renewed. So Gazprom didn't do that. Obviously, with already maybe the plan in mind to blackmail Germany in this uh, kind of situation in the war against Ukraine. So the hesitance of Germany to cut Russia from SWIFT is directly connected to that because it means that the gas price is increasing. Germany needs urgently gas because there was a lack of gas in the storage and uh, they are heading to recession. And this is the problem, not of too little uh, military. And this is not the problem of Ukrainians, but this is the problem because Schroeder was able to lobby that first gas storage is 
belongs to Gazprom to a significant share, which is already problematic. And second, that the chancellor now, uh, Scholz, who is from the same political party as Schroeder, uh, Socialist Party, was famous for rather support of the, and, and, and that he never turned uh, against Schroeder. Well, obviously now the, everything is turning. Where came the turning point? People in the West, they became quite skeptical of democracy because of examples like that. And quite frustrated that democracy is not working. The fact that Ukraine is staying now for the fourth day alone against such a huge army of Russia, which is the strongest army in the world, in fact, it shows that democracy does work. Because democracy, the power of people, is the only fact that makes Ukraine stand. Which means that, for example, regional troops for protection, they were very quickly organized. People are motivated to fight. Civil society organized themselves in their ways, created communication channels. Everything works as a watch. Everything is very well uh, organized despite such a disaster and such a catastrophe that is happening, which shows to the world and, and the fact that the leadership didn't leave, although the US proposed to, to the President Zelensky to leave, they didn't leave. So all this unity and all this power of people actually showed to the world that it's not that democracy failed, democracy didn't fail, but democracy fall asleep. And in fact, their elites, they became associated with authoritarian, exactly what Joseph already uh, explained, but also that people became lazy and they uh, became less active, less engaged, and it all brings this frustration. Well, now in this, with this example, people got mobilized and also around European countries, there are many protests. There's a lot of pressure to, from journalists on the governments, which made the turn in the politics and made the government like German to decide in the very last minute as the last one to support Ukraine. Yeah, uh, I'm also optimistic and, and I completely agree with what Oksana just said. It, it feels rather that a number of countries became complacent with the state of their democracies. And we forget that democracy needs continuous care, not just against uh, foreign actors, but also against the polarizing forces of our own societies. It, it, it's, it's very interesting what's been happening because of the Russian invasion. Again, I'm, I'm optimistic because I believe that the resilience of, of the Ukrainian people and the Ukrainian army is certainly a surprise for, for President Putin. They did not expect the fight would last this long. They, they probably expected that it would last one day, that the Ukraine president would leave the country, that the troops would uh, surrender, and then it would be a fait accompli for the international community. That would potentially have been the ideal scenario for, for Russia, of course. Now, that as the days drag, the citizens of other countries are realizing finally that this unhealthy relationships that a lot of our markets had with Russian oligarchs can only bring us to a state of deep insecurity. I mean, a couple of days ago, just the Financial Times and other news uh, outlets around the world were just communicating the fact that a number of former European leaders were, because of the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, they had decided to resign from their positions in uh, boards of directors of uh, Russian corporations, which, I mean, if we think about that for a second, it's just amazing the fact that we had former European leaders hired by Russian corporations, right? I mean, this speaks a lot about the state of the revolving door or the efforts to ban revolving doors across the West. The situation as I see it, beside the fact that, as I mentioned, I, I'm optimistic, Russia has really deployed war on anti-corruption efforts in the West from multiple angles. 
It's not just a matter that uh, Russian oligarchs have been using uh, different industries in uh, London and Florida to uh, hide their stolen assets, to launder their, their, their monies, but also have been using their stock exchanges to raise capital for strategies or efforts that are connected to the policies of the Russian state. At the same time, they have also managed to weaken the trust of the citizens to the leadership. As I mentioned, I mean, right now we're we're seeing the, the connection between former leaders of the main European countries with uh, Russian corporations. This has an effect. We're not just talking about the state of anti-corruption. I mean, it, it is certainly important how we limit the capacity of the Russian uh, oligarchs to launder their money. But if we consider corruption from a much broader perspective and we look at institutional corruption, the capacity of foreign agents of uh, undermining the trust that our citizens have in these institutions that are absolutely critical for our ways of life, then in many ways we've seen that over the past 10 years they have been effective. It is, it's too early, of course, to say how effective they were. Uh, and, and hopefully, again, as I say, as the battle drags on, Russia becomes less and less successful at this gamble. But from Japan, I also see it from the other part of the world. We here, we, every day we're having this conversation, we know that China is also watching. Because let's remember that just a couple of months ago, it was not just the situation with Russia and Ukraine, but also China and Taiwan. Everything that the international community does at this precise moment is a lesson for China. It's not just a way of containing Russia, which is absolutely critical at this moment, but we also have the scenario on the other side of the world. And I'm not exactly sure what is the ultimate goal for President Putin, but it certainly went, or China has definitely been part of their formulations. It has been part of their strategizing over the past few months. So I would be extremely careful with how we consider the sanctions and, uh, and the way that we continue to enforce and hopefully bolster these anti-corruption efforts. Uh, just a couple of hours ago, I read, for example, that the Trans- uh, Transatlantic Task Force have decided to step up in their efforts to identify uh, individuals that are connected to uh, state interest in Russia to freeze their assets, which is something that a lot of us have been calling for for a long time. We know that legislation has been advancing in the US, in, in, in the UK, but for what I understand, enforcement has been lagging on the other hand, because of course, it's an extremely difficult activity to locate all these individuals. For the UK, the British Virgin Islands, for example, have become a huge headache for their capacity to, to, to control the, 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 the flows of illicit finance, right? But we can also see it from a different perspective. And I think this could be a lateral move uh, for, both of, uh, for all of us that are in this uh, field of anti-corruption. We, we tend to think of it only in terms of uh, the legal aspect of what countries uh, and Congress and parliaments can do to enact uh, stronger regulation, which is absolutely important. But if we consider that many of the things that we're trying to consider illegal, uh, illegal activities may not really fall under that designation in, in Russia, in China, because of the control of the judiciary and law enforcement agencies. On the other hand, even if it was, the first thing that Russia had done over the last few days, for example, was to limit uh, the access of its citizens to verifiable information online. So another track that we could start also pushing forward is that it's not really necessary to define different activities in the legal sense, but we can also frame it in the political sense. 
even if it's not an openly illegal activity in some of the countries that we're targeting, it is certainly an unethical and immoral activity. And citizens are very responsive of this. So I would say we can also take a leave from the Russian notebook or the Russian state notebook in terms of how do we handle relation between the population and the state. Luckily, democracies are in a much better position to strengthen or at least to support activities for strengthening the rule of law via transparency, access to information, and, and just support advocates that are working in these countries. Because as many people have already said, this is not really a fight between the Russian country and Ukraine. This is a fight between the Russian elite with President Putin at its head and a democratic sovereign country. So I think that it's very important also to try as much as possible to work hand in hand with anti-corruption activists that are present in, in Russia. Which is, of course, coming back to what Oksana said earlier in our conversation, precisely what the Russian elite doesn't want. If one of the reasons that developments in Ukraine were perceived as threatening to Russia in the first place was the concern that a country like Ukraine, which shares so much common history and culture with, with Russia, could inspire a genuine citizen-based anti-corruption movement in, in Russia, uh, there would be a certain irony, a good irony. And again, I hate to be overly optimistic if Russia's aggressive action in Ukraine ends up helping to move that forward rather than setting it backward. I do wonder, and I, I worry that I'm being overly optimistic on day four, things, so many things go so wrong, but just, I feel like, in, I feel like in these early stages, uh, Russia may have overplayed its hand, at least politically. Again, militarily, it's day four days in, the Ukrainian army and, and citizens have, have resisted with enormous heroism um, and I think have been more successful than most people predicted. But we don't know what's going to happen on the battlefield. But it seems like with respect to the political and information war, at least in the West, Ukraine has won a decisive victory that I think Russia didn't anticipate. My conjecture is that Russia hoped that all of that it had done to buy influence in the West would lead to a West that was not just divided among Western countries, but within Western countries with different factions kind of buying the Russian line or saying more sympathy or like you've seen a little bit of that, but, but not, not so, not so much. Um, I did want to pick up something, Joseph, you said a few, uh, several, I mean, several things that were really interesting. You ended by noting that this is really a war of the Russian elite. And you also talked earlier uh, about how the Russian elite and oligarchs, which are not, there's a, those are overlapping categories, but not completely the same, right? The people in the Duma, for example, or the people close to Putin are not necessarily all the same as the wealthy business leaders. And so it's much more complicated, I think, than many people like me uh, make it seem when we just refer casually to oligarchs or the leader like it was all the same thing. But they, they park their money in the West. They use their money in the West. And I wonder whether... Again, I, I'm going to sound strangely optimistic throughout this conversation, given how dark the situation is. But, you know, Oksana, everything you were saying before seems exactly right about all the concerns about Western interests getting addicted to Russian money and Russian energy. But there's a flip side to that, too, which is the, the hope, I guess, in this situation is that the Russian elite got addicted to their access to Western institutions and Western physical locations. And Paul Krugman, the Nobel-winning economist and New York Times columnist, had a column a couple of days ago where he uh, described this as potentially the Russian elite's Achilles heel if the West, and then he picked up Oksana on exactly the point you made, if the West can get over its own institutional corruption act, um, the Russian elite, more than the Russian state, may be vulnerable to genuine sanction. Um, and the more the Ukrainian people and army uh, resist on the battlefield and draw this process out, the more those sanctions are going to get stronger over time and the more they're going to hurt. I'd be interested in your perspective on that. I mean, is that right? Is there a sense in which Russia may have done things to make the West more vulnerable to Russian influence, but the Russian elite has also you know, through the pursuit of their own self-interest, put them in a position where they're more vulnerable to Western sanctions than then maybe they would have been 15 years ago. 
There is absolutely sense in it. And this is why everyone was uh, pushing from the beginning so much for the hard economic sanctions. And uh, these uh, networks uh, of Western elites and uh, Russian businesses, uh, they are exactly the reason why that was so hard to push for these sanctions. And it is still hard because swift cut happened not uh, fully. Okay, they blocked the gold reserves that might hurt as well. And now the idea is to push that this is not selectively the sanctions and not applied only in the EU. And for example, Switzerland is staying out. The people in Europe need to realize now that this is the war of them because the elites will don't do anything because they are a part of it. In fact, not all, of course, I cannot say, but uh, the example that I brought for Germ from Germany, one can find examples like that in other countries. And here I would like to refer to Putin Wallet's uh, uh, initiative that Ukrainian NGO Anti-Corruption uh, Action Center uh, started, which shows all those uh, connections between Western politicians and uh, Russians. But now this is really important that people in West understand that this is their war and this is necessary to take influence through going to streets, to, uh, through pressure in the media. And I mean, the threat is not only rhetorical one again to democracy or to the values. There is a real security threat for Europe because in Ukraine there are uh, four Nuclear, nuclear power plants. Russian, they, Russians, they station uh, themselves in Chernobyl, so they are covering themselves with Chernobyl and the level of uh, radiation increased already. There is a high risk that uh, the largest power plant in Europe, uh, in Zaporizhia, can be hit. And this is a real threat that Europe has. So the argument that NATO doesn't march into Ukraine because they are um, alliance to defend themselves is not valid because there is already threat and Europe needs to, pre uh, to defend themselves and to prevent this threat. So this is the only way, I'm optimistic on the one hand because of the example that Ukraine showed, what can work if people act together but now the step is to, to be done in Europe and uh, also to realize, again, this power of democracy and how much pressure they can put and to not to divide in borders and not to say that EU does sanctions and Switzerland doesn't. Because this will not help if uh, some nuclear or chemical catastrophe or uh, natural, uh, all the natural consequences of the war uh, they will all uh, have the direct effect for Europe. Europe is not that large. And in these terms, it has also implications for thinking of anti-corruption. Because until now, especially anti-corruption policies, uh, global anti-corruption regimes, there was everything around working with the development, development countries and everything was about thinking that uh, this transformation or hybrid regimes, developing countries, they are corrupt and they have to, have to follow uh, the West. But now the thinking is turning or paradigm is turning towards thinking of corruption in networks beyond borders. So there is no global North and global South, but there are uh, networks. And as Joseph uh, said, this is also the paradigm of changing relations between democratic countries and authoritarian countries. That no play, no game can be uh, between them in terms of uh, economic, close uh, economic interconnections. And today I think, or I hope, I don't know whether it's relevant tomorrow, but uh, today the UN uh, will decide about the possibility to change the uh, Security Council. And I think this is um, 
kind of a historic moment or also manifestation, it might be a manifestation of this new order that Joseph said uh, about in the beginning to show that all the structures of international organizations are changing. This is certainly a, a, a complex and complicated a, a point to discuss. Matthew, as you perfectly said, the elite is not necessarily the same individuals as the oligarchs, which I think is, is, is not just simple difference to keep in mind, but I think that is something that decision makers have to be very aware of, which I'm sure they are. But in terms also of what that represents for the potential reactions of a cornered Russia, right? As I was reading just a couple of days ago, it was uh, a point, I think it came from a Carnegie Foundation article, pointing out the fact that we normally think about uh, Russia as a kleptocracy, or at least we describe the Russian state as being filled with kleptocrats. But a kleptocracy normally considers political power as instrumental. They use political power to steal monies from the country. But in the case of Russia, we mostly see the fact that money is used to advance political goals. To remain in power, of course, as in any other uh, authoritarian regime, but also to expand powers and project power to other countries, right? It's not really unclear to what degree or, or, or to what extent would President Putin and his close circle would go to in order to remain in power. We can think of what is exactly the winning coalition for the Russian state. Certainly the, the citizens are not part of the political calculation, which that doesn't mean that they are powerless. And I'll go uh, to, to that point in one second. But I also, I'm also unsure of what, the, what is the degree that oligarchs are crucial for the survival of uh, Putin and his uh, inner circle. And a corner Russia could become an even more dangerous Russia, even if in the long term, uh, attacking or cutting the lifeline of oligarchs could potentially increase the, the international security of the Western coalition. I am worried that that may push Russia into a more extreme position in order of uh, the political control of, uh, of its society, of its uh, position of aggression towards the West and its alliance that is not completely overt at this moment, but is on the way of being with China. So the question is, how do we, how do we hit the dirty money that is powering today's Russian aggression in Ukraine in a way that also enables for some way of, so that the Russian society or, or perhaps more reform-oriented leaders within Russia are able to strengthen their position and enter in, in a more positive diplomatic avenue with the West. I think that, that that is going to be the very delicate path that we need to find. And I'm not completely sure that we have the information and we don't have the level of agreement, even within diplomatic circles in the U.S., and certainly not between the U.S. and its uh, European allies to, to have a clear answer. But I really hope that we find that answer and we find it very soon, uh, because as I mentioned earlier, as the war continues, uh, the chances are that, uh, at least how I see it, that uh, Russia may become more desperate to have a win in Ukraine. That's, uh, I think we can all agree uh, with that. And maybe that's, that's a good note on which to end this, this conversation. But before we do uh, wrap for today, I, I, I just want to make sure that we uh, acknowledge and think about all of our um, friends, associates, family, etc., who are in Ukraine right now or who have been affected by these events. I know both of you have family and friends in the region. I have, um, I, I know a number of people there. I was, I'm on the board of Transparency International's Ukraine chapter. Um, and I've had the opportunity to go to Kiev a couple of times and meet uh, wonderful and inspirational activists and, and others there. We're all, we're all thinking of them. Um, I think all of us wish there was more 
that we could we could do. You know, we're not our governments. Uh, we can try to uh, you know make donations and 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 speak out. Um, but there is this feeling of, of, of powerless. And if we're feeling that, I can only imagine how the people who are actually in the, the line of fire right now are, are feeling. But, you know, we, we all do what little bit we can. And what we can do as uh, academics who have this uh, small platform is try to uh, continue to move forward discussions of these issues and how uh, the global fight against corruption uh, relates to and we hope can ultimately in the long term be advanced by Um, these terrible recent developments. So I just want to thank both of you for taking um, time uh, out of your schedules uh, and away from your news feeds uh, to to share your insights and and your thoughts with me today on our podcast. Uh, Oksana, Joseph, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much, Matthew. A pleasure to discuss about this, this very important topic. Thank you both. That's it for today. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Kickback. As I said at the beginning, we will have more interviews on the current situation in Ukraine throughout the week. Please check your podcast feed to stay updated. As always, we link to the main talking points of this episode in the show notes. Kickback is a joint production of the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network and the Global Anti-Corruption Blog. It is made by Niels Kürbis, Matthew Stevenson, Jonathan Kleinpass and me, Christopher Starke with assistance by Amy Assad and music by Kehan Gorkar. Until next time.